0: So it's kind of a starting point or a title for today, if you will, Redemption and Healing. Go to that next slide, please, Ashley. So God has provided a way that any person from any background can be made whole in Christ. Unfortunately, redemption and healing are often birthed out of humiliation and despair. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to to see this, this prophecy over Egypt today. And we're going to see, and it's going to take kind of a different trajectory than some of the passages we've been in. So if you're unfamiliar, if you're just joining us, if you're our guest today, first off, we're really glad you're here. And as Alex said in the video, you matter, and we're glad you're here, and we want to connect with you. That's why we ask for people to fill out connection cards so we can follow up and just see how we can serve you as a church. But if you're our guest here, if is the first, second, third time, and you haven't been here for the Isaiah series, here's kind of a breakdown Isaiah begins with a proclamation over God's people and God's people have wandered away from God at this point point. And so he is he is calling them back and he is proclaiming a coming judgment That God is going to lift his hand of blessing off of his people And that the nations are going to come in and going to conquer them And that God is going to not only allow this but ordain this that he might get their attention And so God's people have withdrawn and they continue to worship other gods and do other things. And so God is telling them, listen, either come back to me or here's what's coming. Well, after chapter 12, it begins to talk about the nations that will come in and conquer Judah and Israel, but they're evil and wicked nations too. And so God also speaks through Isaiah and tells them for their wickedness, yes, he will be an instrument of God's. Yes, he will be a tool of judgment, if you will, But they too will be judged for their wickedness. And so, in the last few weeks, we've had just some really strong calls on us to return, on us as a people of God to remember that this could happen to any one of us. And so, today, I want to look through kind of three lenses, if you will. I want you to consider, as we always do, through a personal lens hey, how does this apply to me? I want us to look through this through an ecclesial lens or through a church lens. How does this apply to our church and the church in America? And then, how does this apply to us as a nation? Now, I say that, and I say that with a little bit of pause or a little bit of caution. Please don't take this as we unpack this today and think this is great. Everybody else outside these four walls needs to hear it. Amen. You with me? Yes. Let's start here. It starts in me, the individual, in you, the individual. It starts here in us, the church, in the church in America. It starts with the people of God. And then it trickles out to the community around us, be that Cerritos, Southern California, the United States, whatever it might be. But this is going to sound like a letter or or a chapter that could be written to America today. Well, let's not be too quick to just point at everybody else. Fair? Isaiah 19, let's start in verse 1. It says, an oracle concerning Egypt... Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt or false gods of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt with them. One commentary said this, and I I couldn't summarize it any better, so I'm just going to read this to you. Uh, Andrew Davis, in Exalting Jesus and Isaiah, he writes this, he says, there was a time when Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth. Now, Egypt is a third-world country ranked 102nd in the world in terms of per capita economic strength. Sit on that for a minute. Egypt, when you think of Egypt, if you don't think of a biblical story, you probably think of Pharaohs and Tutankhamun or something, right? And that, that's Egypt at its most pronounced. Egypt at one time was an empire that dominated the planet. Now it's a third-world nation ranked 102nd in the world's economy. Now one of you is probably smart enough to know how many countries there are in the world, but I don't care, that's, that's pretty bad, yeah. right? And so here we are, you can be at the top of the game and you can lose it all. This guy goes on, he says, there was a time when Egypt's pyramids represented the towering achievement of human technology. Now they stand as ancient reminders of how far Egypt has fallen. There was a time when Egypt's armies were the most feared on earth and she could project her power anywhere she chose in that region of the world now, Egypt isn't even ranked among the top 15 most powerful militaries in the world. How the mighty have fallen. He goes on, he says, Egypt, however, shouldn't feel singled out in this matter. The, time of the, uh, is true, this, the same is true of Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, Hungary, Mongolia, Spain, France, England, Germany, the list goes on. All of whom who had opportunity to dominate the world for a brief time, but is now humbled by the judgments of God. Consider this, we just celebrated the 75th year of the, invasion, uh, the 75th anniversary of the invasion of Normandy, right? So that is a proud military achievement on behalf of our nation. And I know we didn't do it alone, but we dominated that part of that war, which tipped everything in the favor of the allies who end up finally beating back Nazi Germany. So it could be said this way, if it wasn't for Normandy, Europe, if not, all of the world would be speaking German right now. And in Normandy, for sure, they would have been speaking German at that point. So in these, in these reminders, in these moments where we remember, hey, there was this whole thing that was taking place, and there was this, this country that was becoming an empire on, under a tyrannical ruler. I mean, even the name Hitler in, just invokes a lot of feelings inside of us. That nation now, Germany now, though it's come a long ways from where it was, split into East and West Germany, all to one nation, now is an afterthought in world power. Fair? So the nation that in some of, some of your lifetimes was a dominant global superpower is now just a team in the World Cup. Right? Right? It's a language that if you have some obscure study in school, you can study, but nobody's really teaching it as something you need for banking or power or technology. All these people, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Greece, Egypt, have fallen that far. Verse 2, it says this, I will stir up the Egyptians, I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against each other and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom and so god is saying through isaiah the prophet listen i'm going to destroy egypt so egypt is a huge power at this time it's not at its height Now, biblical Egypt, you can think back to, like, Joseph in Egypt, right? You think back to that season where God's people end up being rescued by Egypt, and it's because of a man who is a follower of God that Egypt is rescued through a famine, right, Joseph? And if you know the story of Joseph, you know his highs and lows. His family sells him into slavery. He ends up rising to prominence. He gets slighted and put in prison, and from that prison story, he rises to being the second most powerful man on the planet, in Egypt, rescuing them from sure and certain death in famine, or at least decimation. So because of that, the people of God, or the family of Joseph, they move into Egypt, and they are treated with some level of prominence. But hundreds of years go by, and the next thing we see as we pick up the story after that is that they're now enslaved to Egypt. And then Moses and the deliverance of 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 the Hebrew people out, and we see them as a superpower. Well, fast forward now to about 2,800 years ago in this passage, and they're still prominent. They're not the most prominent. They're still a prominent power. And God is saying, listen, at times you honored me, or at times you honored people who honored me, and at other times you enslaved people that honored me, that honor me. And all throughout this, you have worshiped other gods. You have, you have engaged yourself in false religion of false gods, And God has exerted himself time and time again over Egypt, showing them he is the one true God. In fact, the ten plagues in Egypt are shots aimed at ten false gods they worship. One of them being the Nile, which we're going to see talked about here in a minute. The other one being Pharaoh himself, who called himself a God, a living God. And so God has asserted himself over Egypt at many times, and many have responded others have rejected. And so as we get to this passage now, God is speaking out over Egypt, and he is promising a judgment over them. Verse 3, and it says, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I, God speaking, will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols, and the sorcerers, and the mediums, and the necromancers. And so Egypt has turned to psychics and fortune tellers and false gods and false worship. And they're turning into human wisdom and human counsel, and they have completely ignored God. So let me just, again, we're talking about Egypt, but I want to to think in terms of our current context. So America today looks a lot like this. America today embraces everything from psychics to witchcraft, atheism to Buddhism, and nearly persecutes Christianity for saying there is only one God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How are we any different than biblical Egypt? Now, that's a, that's a strong question, a strong statement to make. But truly, in the era of tolerance, are we, are we any different? A nation founded on, and you can still read the Ten Commandments in courtrooms in some cases, a place founded by faithful people, not a perfect nation, a nation with a checkered past for sure. But now, today... Are we any different? And so you have to ask yourself the question then, if, if this is a judgment pronounced over a nation, over an empire, over a superpower, who has never been known for following God, then what might you and I need to hear in a nation that was once known for being a people of faith? How might we need to assess ourselves and our church community, and our church at large within our nation. How might we need to hear these words today? Verse four, God says, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. A fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. And the water of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dry and parched and its canals will become foul and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. So at one time, Egypt uh, Egypt was known for its fertility, and a lot of it came off the River Nile. In fact, it was so fertile that it, in fact, again, if you go back to the famine, if you go back to that season where Joseph, because of what God had done through Joseph, rescues Egypt from them, Egypt was not only at risk, it was the entire region that was at risk because Egypt was one that provided for everybody around them. And they grew crops and herds and things that supplied for the nations around them. And so God's pronouncement of desolation, it replaces fertility. So here's a note for you. The nation that was once fertile ground, providing crops and herds for themselves, and many neighboring nations will be judged by God for their false worship and become barren. Again, I was asked the question, where do we need to see ourselves in this? Verse 7, it will be bare places by the Nile. And on the brink of the Nile that is sown by the Nile will be parched and driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will langu- languish who spread nets on the water. So the provision of the Nile, so not only this fertile ground where they had so much and harvested so much that they had an overflow, but they became the provision for the entire area. So need now, because of judgment, will replace provision. It says that the nation that once provided for the entire region, making them both powerful and benevolent, will be judged by God for their false worship and no longer even able to provide for themselves, making them weak and helpless. It's the next slide. So they will be judged for their false worship and no longer even able to provide for themselves. So they go from power and provision to a place of need, weakness, and helplessness. And so God is speaking to them directly in the places where they have been strong, in the, in the place where they once were a, a superpower, in the, and, and the places where they once used to not only care for themselves, but supply for nation upon nation upon nation. God is taking aim at them and reminding them, listen, because of this, I'm going to withdraw all of this—the very things that you used to rest in, the very things that kept you comfortable, the very things that you used to pray to, like the Nile River, or the cows that, that grazed on the outside of the Nile. All those things that you have made out God's or made into gods, made into idols, things that you worshipped. I'm going to strike all the things that you worshipped to show you one more time that I am God and they are not. Or I am God and nothing else is. So I will take you from a place of prominence all the way to a place of weakness. Verse 9 it says, The workers in combed flax will be in despair and the weavers of white cotton, those who are pillars in the land, will be crushed and all who work for pay will be grieved. So the economics of Egypt will also be destroyed. The next slide. Despair replaces wealth businesses that once thrived in Egypt, giving them economic strength and power will be taken from them for their false worship. And a once wealthy nation will become a nation in need. Again, does this strike chords at home? Does this resonate in a sense that these things could have been said about us, that, that not only were we fertile ground and so much so that we provided for others, not only were we so economically successful that we were able to and still are able to, large portion of our federal budget goes to other nations. Not sure I understand all the geopolitical reasons for that, but I know that billions and billions of dollars leave our country to help support others. So this is us, our economic success, our strength, allowed us to engage a war in Normandy that was, not at our, that, was, that was not necessarily something we had to engage, but we could engage. That we could, that we could participate in the world because of strength here at home. God is speaking to a nation that has all of that and saying, listen, I'm going to strip you of all of that so that you will know that I am God and that there is no other God. Verse 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish, and the wisest counsels of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. I, let's just pause there for a minute. I love that the Bible was written prior to the politically correct movement, right? And that the language here is just clearer, right? So your best are pretty stupid, is what God's saying, right? Like your best thinking got you to this. And the people that are counseling you, I just love what Isaiah says, or what God says through Isaiah, they're giving you stupid counsel. Social media. Yeah, okay, so you guys get the point, right? Right, I read things online. I was like, really? And that passes it advice? Really? And this is how we live our lives? Really? He says, listen, your wisest people are giving you stupid counsel. Obviously, the heart is, turn back to me, let me counsel you. Right? God's heart is there. Like, listen, you don't have to go down this road. See, God wouldn't tell people ahead of time if they, had, if they didn't have the opportunity to course correct. Okay? Like, God isn't telling you, hey, listen, you're heading down a bad road just to tell you, hey, you're heading down a bad road and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, it's all about, hey, listen, you have opportunity to return. You don't have to get stupid counsel. You can get right counsel. So God is always saying this with a heart of warning. So verse 11, the princes of Zohan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm the son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? He's saying, listen, your best thinking got you to the place you're in now that God is saying, I'm going to judge you for. Proverbs 16 says it this way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that sounds really good and makes sense to you and me, maybe. But in its, its end, it's, it's death. And God is saying that to Egypt right now, like your best counsel is going to end in your utter destruction. And I'm going to strip you of everything in the meantime, that as you do this, it, you will take, I'm going to take away everything. Again, always with a desire that they could learn and return. Verse 12. Where are your wise men? Let them tell you that might know the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her. A spirit of confusion will make Egypt stagger in all its deed, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. There's an image for you of human wisdom or human counsel apart from God, right? that You are like staggering like a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Sometimes I think we, as followers of Jesus, are so immersed in the world around us that sometimes this is us. That we just, the things that are commonly accepted today are not necessarily biblical or in line with Jesus. And that just because it's common and just because it's accepted or just because the church next door does it or doesn't do it or whatever, that until we return wholeheartedly to God, that this image of a drunk staggering around in his own vomit ought to sit in front of us as a caution. Verse 16, in that day, and so here goes God saying, listen, there will be a day. So in that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts that shakes over them. So again, as he says, as an approaching army, this isn't a knock on women, this is a knock on their army. It's saying you and your men and your might and your strength are are going to be afraid. As this coming army comes, there's going to be nothing you can do about it. Verse 17, the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. So God's speaking to a certain specific and coming time where he will mete out judgment on them. Verse 18, so again, in that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. And so it says, in that day, now bear in mind, this is where the entire passage pivots So there's a warning. Here's what I'm going to do. There's a warning. There's judgment coming. Here's how I will judge you. I will strip you of your being able to produce and and, and grow and have life. And I'm going to take from you your ability for provision for yourself and for others. And I'm going to strip of you your economic strength and power. And when I do that, you will try and get counsel, but your counsel will be stupid. And when you get wrong counsel, you'll go wrong direction. And when you continue to do that, I'm going to judge you. There will be a day. And in that day, he says, this is what will take place. But then he also says this, God, through Isaiah to Egypt, in that day, Egyptians will swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. In that day, some of you will come to faith. Think in the, in the largest scope of scripture And we we find ourselves tracing back to Abraham, to Abram, even before his name was Abram, Abraham. And God's saying, listen, I'm going to birth a faith from you. Generation after generation after generation of people who have fallen away from me. In you, I'm going to start something. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just one nation. Not just Israel, not just Judah, not just America, not just this, not just that. All nations will be blessed. Say global faith, right? That we are the largest faith, that we are a historical faith. And that there is, this is not for a people group. Yes, at times, groups have just kind of kept it to themselves. We see that throughout history and we see some of that today. Church is one of the most divided places on Sunday morning when our neighborhoods might be multi-ethnic, then churches tend to be monoethnic. We are an anomaly, an anomaly here. This church is roughly a third white, a third Hispanic and a third Asian, given the day it might ebb and flow, but there's not one dominant ethnicity here anymore. That's not normally true of churches. But our faith is a faith of the world. It isn't based here. It didn't start here. And this is a a faith that should not stay here. That we should be a people that should take it. And again, maybe the distance we have to travel to take it is next door or in our own home. But it shouldn't just stay with us. And so God, over this pronouncement of judgment, again, his heart desires that that the Egyptian people would return to God. And he says, listen, in that day, when all kind of, when everything hits the fan in that day, there will be a people that will come to faith. There will be a people that will swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Verse 19, he says, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. So Egyptians will begin to worship God. This pillar, this altar idea is that worship of God will break out in the land of Egypt. That people will worship Jesus in this place, he says. Verse 20, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. Listen, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And Isaiah once again preaches Jesus 800 years before Jesus enters into human history. So Isaiah is proclaiming this gospel to Egypt and said, listen, God created you and loves you and desires you and you were made to be worshipers of God. But you have chosen to worship anything else and everything else, including the guy you call king. And yet I will strike down everything you care for until you understand that there is one God only. He says, and then when you cry out to me because of the oppression, I will send you a savior. And Isaiah, again, long before Jesus enters human history, prophesies the gospel, proclaims in advance the truth of the gospel that Jesus will come and live the life that you and I are called to live, but we have failed; that Egypt has failed, and he will come and suffer the death that we that we deserve and that Egypt deserves. And he will hang on that cross for the sin of humanity. And he will suffer and die to cover the sin of anyone who would come to him in faith. And then he will be laid in a grave for the finality of death and raised from the grave to give us new life. And in that, Egypt or us, anyone who would desire to follow Jesus, anyone can come to faith. That this is, again, not a national thing. This isn't a 21st century thing. This is a global historical thing that has never not existed. In the days of Abraham, when he was told, listen, you will become a blessing to all nations. The promise was, through you, I will bring Jesus. Through this promise to Egypt, through Jesus, I will restore Egyptians and Jews and Assyrians and Iranians and Russians and Americans and whatever. But the promise of a Savior stands. 1 John 4 says this, And we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. This isn't a national thing. This is a world thing. And God is speaking to an Egypt who has never been known for their worship of God, though many people in Egypt did worship God. But they had always had a polytheistic approach where they worshiped many gods, again, including their pharaoh, including the Nile, including a lot of things. And God is calling them to change in this passage. Verse 21, it says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. If you think about that, even that line right there kind of represents a worship service. Right? Many today will come and sing songs of worship. They will sacrifice, they'll, they'll bring, and, and not sacrifice, obviously like an animal or something, you might think of that, but some will, some will sacrifice their time and their talents and serve today. We have kids over there with people teaching our kids right now, and it's a sacrifice for them not to be in church right now. But they are giving of their time and of their effort and of their talent and of their study, and they've given throughout the week so that our kids can be in there learning about Jesus so you can focus here. Some will come and give financially to call this church home. That we will sacrifice and worship today is the same thing saying, listen, in Egypt, there will come a time when they will worship God and they will bring sacrifice and offering. Isaiah 1020 said this several weeks ago, it says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will be no more... Excuse me, will no more lean on him who struck them, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Consider this just for a minute. In the first 12 chapters, we looked at the people of God being judged for their distance from God. For them wandering away from God, God is calling them to repentance and judging them. Now, in the last several chapters, the last seven or eight chapters, we've seen God judging surrounding nations, nations that had never been followers of God, though they had remnants and pockets of people that followed God. He is calling judgment out on that, and he's always leaving this return or this moment, this promise of redemption, and he's calling them to restoration. Just as he called the people of God, he says, listen, as I judge you, so I, I will leave a remnant that will worship me. Like, I'm not, not everybody will die in this, but many will. In Egypt, not everyone will die, but many will. Egypt will be judged, but then worship of God will break out. And at some level, you just have to ask the question, if, like we said last week, if every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus, at what cost, like at what cost are we waiting for? What is it that we're waiting to see around us before we treat this seriously and say that this is real? Next slide. So uh, I just wanted to ask, at what cost are we doing this? At what cost did the people of Egypt receive a savior? How many Egyptians were judged and died as Egypt continued in rebellion against God? And at what cost are we willing to continue in unrepentance? Personally, corporately as a church, nationally as a people, whether it be in our city and community, whether it be in our home, what exactly is the cost we're willing to pay before we will surrender everything to Jesus? We have to consider that question. Verse 22, it says, The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Listen, healing came through striking. Healing came through pain. But again, this message is given in advance. See, healing and restoration and redemption does not have to come at that cost. Verse 23, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. These were obviously uh, nations that didn't get along. And Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. Obviously all nations that didn't get along were enemies of each other. A blessing in the midst of the earth Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So the outcome is great. Now we see all the nations gathering together, working together, worshiping together. But again, I just ask, at what cost? So chapter 20, here's where we began, and we'll end here. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. So there's the year that this took place. It says, At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, Both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of Egypt. So that quirky little story of a prophet running around naked for three years is saying, listen, this is how your nation will be led into captivity by the surrounding nation. Your young and your old will be stripped and humiliated and taken captive. If you don't hear... God says, if you don't listen, here's the outcome. In fact, God goes a step further and says, listen, I know you're not going to listen. And I know that many of you, if not most of you, will not bend your knee. But I'll bend it for you. I will humble you and humiliate you in order to get your attention. Revelation 7 says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb or before Jesus, clothed in white or righteousness with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Sometimes we need to remember that, that this isn't just a national faith, that this is something that takes place and has taken place long before we were ever here. Sometimes we reject the history of our faith thinking, oh, that was just what they did in 1950 or in 1850 or in 450. And we forget that our faith exists because of the people that came before us, for the people that paved the way for us. Our name, Generations Church, came from that. It came from the, nation, from the generations that paved the way for us, that we are a link in the chain, that, that we stand on the shoulders of the generation that provided this for us that provided the finances to buy this building. We stand on their shoulders, and we're the link in the chain to reach the next generation. Our name came from that understanding, that belief that we have a historical faith. Not just the the generations we can touch and the generations we can see, but we come from thousands of years of history of people worshiping Jesus. That we come from a historical faith and our history is good and rich. It's flawed and broken but it is good and rich. And it has come from nations who have been all but broken just so God could put a redemptive plan in place in their nation. I have to ask the question for us, personally, corporately, even nationally, what cost are we willing to pay in order for us to honor God here? We'll close with just a few things. Questions for consideration. What sins are we withholding from God personally that cause us to drift away from how God calls us to live that could ultimately end in our own destruction? At one point a people worshiping God solidly, faithfully, they don't just wake up and decide, I don't want to worship God anymore. Sin sets in. We start choosing ourselves and our way over God's way. We, we start saying, listen, I know better than God in this instance. And slowly but surely our heart hardens and our neck stiffens towards God and we drift. What is there in our hearts that we're withholding? That could be the very thing that is that, that slippery slope, that thing that would see us drift away. Next one is: where's the church lost biblical practices and even embraced unbiblical ones? As we're reading through this list of Egypt's, Egypt's sins and worship. Man, I can't help but think about when I drive around here and all you see is psychics and, you know, astrology and this. And like, we've embraced everything else in our nation. And we're, there are, these are not hidden things that, that we hear Christians all the time talking about karma and astrology and their sign. And they, like, it's, it's, it's drifted its way into the church and sometimes we don't even see it. We think, oh, that's just that quirky part in the newspaper or on the news or this or that. But where have we embraced other worship practices that that God has time and time again said don't do it? Mm -hmm. Next one is, how are we as a nation ignoring God? Now, How can we as a church call our nation to repentance? You probably have different answers to this depending upon what political persuasion you sit on. Maybe, Maybe your heart is for the immigrant, or maybe your heart is for the poor. Maybe your heart is for the unborn. But where as a nation have we lost our heart? Where have we lost the belief that every life is a life that God created? You can have different beliefs about a border or not a border. I don't care at this moment. But you have to have a heart for people. Unborn or born. Born here or not born here. Where as a nation have we lost our heart for people? Because it's a reflection of our heart for God. Acts says this, And now, brothers, you acted in ignorance, as did also your fathers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Let's pray. God, forgive us as we often live and act and walk in ignorance. Sometimes we don't know. But God, there's a lot of times we do know, and we just ignore you. And if we're honest, Lord, we live there. There's places where our nation has ignored you. Lots, lots of places. But God, in my heart, I don't see a national answer. I see an answer that begins in the, in the heart of every individual that proclaims that Jesus is Lord. Yes. We can't legislate morality, but we can, we can see a movement of your spirit transform us. So God, I just want to leave with these three questions. I pray that you would, you would burn these questions into our hearts, mine, and, and, and my friends here. Where are we holding back? Where are we sinning and just hanging on to it and not giving it to you? Where as a church have we embraced things that are just bad for us and against you? Where have we lost practices that you have called us to that we have just gotten too lazier or, or ignorant of? And God, as a nation, where have we lost our heart? Would you show us, please? Would you give us the confidence to know that you are the solution? And that yes, often, often judgment comes before we will bend. But it doesn't have to. Healing and restoration can come willingly. Or it can come at the end of your discipline. God, let us be willing. Let us, let us be humble and submitted to you. Let us be soft and pliable. And let a movement of, of, your, of you consume us and and trickle out into the community around us, Lord. Let us not be a church who points at them and says they need to change. Let us start with us. Let us be transformed people, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.